بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم لیڈیز اینڈ جنٹلمین السلام علیکم اینڈ ویلکم ٹو دا فورتھ ایپیزوڈ آف پاکستان جیو اسٹریٹجک ریویو ویکلی پوڈ کاسٹ فیچرنگ کامنٹری فرام یونیک پاکستانی پرسپیکٹو آن ریجنل اینڈ انٹرنیشنل ایشوز آف سلیکٹ امپورٹنس آئی ایم یور ہوسٹ زکی خالد وی بگن ود دی ٹارگیٹڈ اسیسنیشن آف میجر جنرل قاسم سلیمانی the head of IRGC Quds Force. On 3rd of January, the U.S. Department of Defense issued a statement announcing the assassin targeted killing of Qasim Soleimani. According to the press release, Soleimani was reportedly developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the Middle East. So according to this press release, um, Uh, the U.S. Uh, reportedly had uh, active intelligence that uh, Soleimani was going to purportedly attack further U.S. installations and that is why they took uh, what uh, the preemptive actions, uh, a term which has gone quite mainstream over the past couple of years. U.S. Defense Secretary Mark Esper released a statement a few days earlier on 31st December mentioning the deployment of an infantry battalion from immediate response force. from of the 82nd airborne division to us central command for i quote response to increased threat levels against us personnel facilities unquote in iraq 750 service members were already sent to kuwait and uh, an additional deployment of 4000 troops is awaited so there there is going to be an almost 5000 personnel being added to central command to uh, stabilize Iraq. 82nd Airborne is uh, the U.S. Army's most strategically mobile division. Um, the Department of Defense uh, requires 82nd Airborne to be on standby for response to crisis contingencies anywhere in the world within 18 hours. So they're all, almost always on standby. They could be deployed anytime to Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, the U.S. has been angry towards Soleimani since long. In May 2019, and then U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton, who was later on uh, sent home through an angry tweet by President Trump, he accused Quds Force and Soleimani of targeting U.S. bases around Iraq. John Bolton was viciously anti-Iran, and uh, he had a, an extremely personal disliking for Qasem Soleimani. And um, in his capacity as NSA, He had directly named Soleimani as the perpetrator of uh, attacks on U.S. military installations, which was quite something because otherwise um, uh, the U.S. defense establishment is uh, very cautious about attributing attacks to any particular person or entity without authoritative proof. Um, but reports suggest that uh, the U.S. has been uh, after Soleimani Since 2018, so almost two years ago, um, U.S. State Secretary Mark um, um, Michael Pompeo, he visited the UAE for emergency discussions around the, what they perceived was the malicious role of Iran in the region and how to protect the interests of uh, American allies in the UAE. And after that uh, snap meeting, 
Pompeo spoke to a prominent media outlet in Abu Dhabi and in which he accused Soleimani of fomenting trouble in Iraq and Syria. So since 2018, Soleimani has been on the U.S.'s radar because prior to that, although Iran has been long involved, his Quds Force has been long involved in fomenting regional troubles, it hadn't directly impacted or attacked uh, U.S. military interests in the region. Their attacks were mostly focused uh, either directly on uh, Israel or uh, interests belonging to the Arab Gulf countries. So since 2018, when the uh, U.S. administration had uh, confirmed reports about uh, Soleimani allegedly trying to jeopardize U.S. interests in Iraq and Syria, that's when uh, he was started to prove a thorn for them. Just to give you a backgrounder about uh, the Quds Force, uh, it is a special forces unit within IRGC uh, reports directly to Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran. It is active on a global scale and units are distributed geographically across the world and it has around 15,000 members. Uh, other names of Quds Force include Niroi Quds, the Pastaran or the Jerusalem Corps. Um, some of its operational tactics involve collection of human intelligence, sabotage, infiltration, assassinations and targeted attacks. It provides training to groups such as Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in Palestine, Shiite militias in Iraq and uh, Houthis in Yemen. So the Quds Force was responsible on an overall to provide a credible but covert means of maintaining and further expanding Tehran's um, geostrategic and geoeconomic interests in the entire Middle East, if that's how one could put it. Soleimani was appointed chief of the Quds Force in 1997. So, before he was killed, um, this was um, almost, uh, he had completed three decades of service with the Quds Force. He organized Shiite militias after Saddam Hussein's fall in 2003 and was a big help in ensuring that uh, President Bashar al-Assad of Syria remained in power and his regime was not destabilized by externals during the Syrian civil war. The regional implications broadly speaking are many. Uh, <clears throat> Iran's Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei has issued a statement warning the US of a harsh retaliation and he describes uh, the killing of Soleimani as America's, I quote, greatest miscalculation since World War II, unquote. Uh, similarly, President Rouhani vowed to uh, I quote, resist U.S. excesses, unquote, and also mentioned his country's desire for revenge. Foreign Minister Jawad Zarif, who was in, uh, just a few days ago, he returned from a meeting, back-to-back -back meetings in Russia and China. He expressed severe resentment on Soleimani's assassination and he vowed that it was a grave mistake and any such, uh, uh, any consequences arising from this uh, targeted assassination would be solely upon the onus of it would solely be upon Washington and quite unusual for a diplomat to speak such language but anyways um, as far as Pakistan is concerned um, 
there hasn't been any uh, reported direct link between Quds Force and uh, Pakistan, but uh, from a Pakistani perspective, the Quds Force was indeed uh, responsible for uh, recruiting uh, sectarian fighters from Pakistan through its various uh, tentacles uh, who would then be sent to Afghanistan and also some places in Syria as part of the Zenabiyun Brigade and similarly in neighboring Afghanistan uh, fighters of a particular sectarian orientation they were picked up uh, and given huge sums of money for uh, to serve as foot soldiers for the Quds Force uh, in Afghanistan and also especially in Syria. Now they were known as the Fatimiyun. From Pakistan's point of view it was the Quds Force which was uh, recruiting, training and uh, funding these uh, fighters for hire in exchange for large sums of money and uh, this obviously had uh, necessitated uh, caused severe internal security implications for Pakistan's national security interests. Um, uh, one is not aware about uh, whether or not these concerns and how they were shared with the Iranian leadership but the Zainabiyun Brigade which was specifically named for Pakistani origin fighters uh, recruited by Quds Force was had become popular overnight in uh, terrorism analysis circles within the Middle East and it was clear that uh, Pakistan's uh, international image and its prestige was being affected by the direct involvement of Quds Force in uh, recruiting youngsters, vulnerable youngsters for carrying out its uh, dirty work across the Middle East. Uh, what are the motives of that? One would not go into it. It's debatable and uh, one would not like to take any sides but uh, the overall objective to highlight is that uh, the Quds Force has been involved with Pakistan through covert means now and then uh, at a people level, people to people level. And uh, the only direct statement which uh, could link the state of Pakistan with Soleimani is a very unusual address which he delivered in Feb 2019, so almost a year ago. Uh, the terrorist group Jaish al-Adil had carried out an attack on an IRGC bus which was carrying soldiers on the Zahid and Khash road in Sistan, Balochistan. On, that's the Irani side of Balochistan. 27 soldiers of IRGC were killed in that attack by Jaish al-Adil. And in the wake of that, uh, General Soleimani he warned Pakistanis he sent a direct and uh, implicit warning to the state of Pakistan and he specifically tried to address the people of Pakistan warning them against what he believed was manipulation by Saudi Arabia. Now Soleimani claimed that uh, Pakistan's continued blind subservience to Saudi Arabia would prop the country up against not just the region but the entire world. That was clearly uh, a warning of sorts that was clearly a message which should have uh, which if there were any such concerns should have been conveyed through the proper channel but 
uh, the the reason he went in the open was that uh, the saudi uh, the iranian leadership uh, believed and continues to believe that pakistan is allegedly trying to provide a base in balochistan for jaish ul adil uh, at the behest of uh, saudi arabia to conduct cross border attacks but factually speaking reports that have emerged in credible counter terrorism analysis forums has established that jashul adil group is uh, based in remote uninhabited areas of sistan balochistan and not uh, in the pakistani side of balochistan pakistan uh, army and its security forces the frontier core the paramilitary force they have been engaged extensively to uh securitize balochistan not just for internal security purposes but also because um projects of strategic importance such as the china pakistan economic corridor uh, its uh, pockets are displaced across balochistan even in remote areas and that's why to even assume that pakistan would be willing to allow such uh, elements to operate from its soil would be pragmatically uh, useless and dangerous and pakistan uh, relying extensively on uh, chinese aid would uh, never allow for any such thing to continue so anyhow uh, if we talk about whether or not sulaimani had any association with pakistan uh, in the past decade or so this was the only such thing which we saw on the outset uh, we did see reports of several uh pakistani military leaders and uh, meeting with their iranian counterparts but they were mostly uh, almost all of them were members of the regular army the armed forces the artesh the iran army iran air force and iran navy and uh, pakistan has been very careful not to meet with um, any particular entity of the irgc to send out wrong signals to its arab gulf allies and uh, we can just broadly uh, make out that uh, as far as the region is concerned arab gulf countries in particular saudi arabia number 1 the uae number 2 bahrain number 3 yemen number 4 and then we have iraq to some extent they would be they would be taking a sigh of relief and uh, because the main influence the main uh, person who was responsible for fomenting so much uh, crises and costs for arab gulf interests in the entire region has been removed and also it's worth mentioning that apart from these select countries israel also stands to benefit immensely but as we'll uh, as one would logically expect just removing a threat in itself does not alleviate the threat level altogether um reportedly sulaimani's successor uh, i believe his name is brigadier kani he has been appointed is prof he has been a long time member of the quds force but um he is not according to analysts of iran he is not known to be as uh,
prominent or influential as Soleimani was because he already, he had built up a cult status for himself. He was presented as the uh, reincarnation of Malik Ashtar and uh, he was held in extremely high prestige by ideological proponents of the Iran regime. He had his own, he was larger than life. And some were speculating that uh, Soleimani would assume a political role after he would retire from uh, the Quds force. But before all of that could happen, he was just recently taken out by the American strike. So, yes, uh, for Pakistan, uh, another important concern is that uh, the Prime Minister Imran Khan and uh, security leadership of Pakistan as also Sultan Qaboos from Oman, both these countries have been trying to mediate and between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Oman has uh, traditionally been doing it uh, below the belt. It has been trying to um, do it very uh, cautiously and very silently. Uh, Pakistan has been very publicly and uh, openly trying to project its efforts. Uh, we've been we've seen these efforts ongoing since the time of uh, former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif and former Army Chief uh, General Rahil Sharif and this uh, process was uh, carried on by the incumbent Prime, uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan and incumbent Army Chief General Kamar Javed Bajwa. Uh, there has been a, a, a there has been a continued policy of trying to uh, mediate between these two ideological uh, rivals who are more strategic competitors and, uh, and this attack just goes to show that uh, Pakistan and Oman's efforts have been thrown down the drain basically. Uh, it was felt since long, the US was feeling since long that um, it was losing its relevancy in the region. Now to give you some context, if I talk in very broad terms, uh, over the past couple of years, specifically in the five to six years which uh, I personally have studied, the US has made extensive efforts to establish its foothold in the uh, so-called Indo-Pacific region. The Pacific theater of operations has been a continued focus because of uh, what the US believes is a uh, unchallenged uh, Chinese expansionism in uh, regional waters uh, which threaten long-term interests of the US and its allies such as Japan and India and Australia and uh, since many years the Arabs were upset um, uh, Arab Gulf leaders were upset with uh, the Barack Obama administration for uh, reaching a peace agreement with Iran and they were uh, uh, also, despite uh, Trump's closeness with the Arabs, they were still not satisfied by the uh, less number of American troops present as a sort of assured security for uh, the Arab Gulf countries against Iran's uh, perceived hegemony. And so, uh, as we saw recently, um, it's my, I've been noticing this since long that uh, whenever uh, 
there is a vacuum in the Middle East and some other actors such as Russia or um, Iran or even Turkey, they try to fill up that space, then uh, something or the other starts to develop and suddenly we see that the US Central Command is uh, prominent once again and it's it's a his historical trend uh, the US Central Command has always been not just literally but even metaphorically at the center of uh, global conflict beginning with the Iran-Iraq war of the 90s up till now uh, whenever the US has felt that its relevancy was being challenged in the region or it was going to be its influence was diminishing it would carry out such an attack or such a raid to remind regional players that uh, it's still there there is some interesting context to Soleimani's assassination in November 2018 the New York Times reported a meeting between senior Saudi intelligence officials who were close to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and certain private businessmen who had some sort of an intelligence background. Both parties discussed the probability of using private companies to assassinate enemies in Iran, including Soleimani. Uh, reportedly, uh, these businessmen who were discussing this with uh, Saudi Intel officials considered contributing a sum of almost two billion dollars for funding purposes. Um, it's unsure whether or not that uh, process or effort was uh, carried out because uh, the recent events uh, such as uh, Jamal Khashoggi's assassination in Turkey and uh, other incidents reveal that uh, the chances are less likely but uh, this news appearing in 2018 in the New York Times reveals that uh, definitely it was an insider leak that uh, the Saudi lead uh, security establishment had been contemplating assassinating Soleimani as the only option left and similarly, in just a few months later, in January 2019, outgoing chief of Israel Defense Forces, Gadi Eisenkot, he described Soleimani as a nuisance for Israeli interests in Lebanon, Syria, and the Gaza Strip. Um, he, he questioned why Soleimani was still alive. So before he uh, vacated office, the outgoing IDF chief, Eisenkot, he questioned the reason why Soleimani was still alive. So we can see that there is a pattern from 2018 onward. Uh, the Apart from the US, the Saudi and Israeli leadership has been trying to understand how and why Soleimani could be removed. Receiving this news positively was the Israeli parliament, the members of the Knesset. Uh, parliamentarians in Israel from across the political spectrum, the, the ruling Likud uh, party and uh, uh, even the some of the opposition parties, they commended Trump for killing Soleimani. And obviously, this is uh, the killing of any Iranian leader is the killing of any Iranian leader is a source of uh, joy for Israel for obvious reasons because 
um, they perceive Iran as the one of the biggest uh, threats to the uh, nationhood of Zion and the Quds Force its idea its uh, propaganda narrative is centered entirely on trying to wipe out Zionism so obviously uh, it would be a moment to rejoice for the Israelis former Mossad deputy chief Ram bin Barak who is now a politician he told army radio that Soleimani's killing was equivalent to the 2008 assassination of Hezbollah leader Imad Mohniya now we all know Mohniya was also trained by Soleimani he was a personal favorite of Soleimani Soleimani used to Soleimani used to say that uh, according to media reports that Imad Mohniya was equivalent to the status of a general in a true sense of the word and he he, he was one of the most prized assets which Soleimani had before he was uh, assassinated uh, but uh, one Israeli Arab parliamentarian Ofer Kasif of the Arab joint list he warned that Soleimani's killing would prompt an attack on Israel and already the IDF has raised its uh, threat alert level this is realistic because um, whilst I'm, uh, the, the interesting thing is that uh, Ofer Kasef of the Arab joint list he actually his full statement says that while some may be enjoy, uh, opening their bottles of champagne it is worth remembering that this it is worth noting that this attack is going to incur uh, severe consequences for the region and would invite attacks on Israel so um, being of ethnic Arab origin uh, Kasif know, knows that um, uh, know that uh, his community in the Arab uh, world would be in the because of their short-sightedness you can say they would be rejoicing on Soleimani's killing such as in uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE but uh, ultimately this has just uh, set off another shock wave which would which has the potential to um, invite reprisal attacks in uh, Iraq and Syria and also in Yemen uh, we've already noticed uh, growing attacks on uh, Aramco in Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, UAE vessels in the Strait of Hormuz so th these uh, retribution attacks could be carried out anywhere because the Iranian leadership has vowed they will take revenge and the only thing left for them practically since the uh, sanctions are first imposed by the US is their national prestige they don't have the money they don't have the finances and they've been finding alternate ways and means to try to retain their national prestige and uh, if we if one expects that uh, the Iranian regime would uh, uh, get overly pragmatic and try to pacify their people that's impossible they are the, the anger and rage brewing within the ordinary Irani people who uh, who were extremely and who are extremely fond of Soleimani as also his uh, the associates and acquaintances of Soleimani who were uh, recruited from pockets in Pakistan Afghanistan Syria Iraq Yemen Bahrain uh, Lebanon and elsewhere uh, they would not short they would not stop short of anything but retribution so yes and uh, um, the US is also well aware of this uh, the 82nd Airborne Division and uh, other troops from uh, Central Command they are on standby 
but this just goes to show that uh, whenever uh, the US feels that its relevancy is being challenged in the region it uh, jumps into the Middle East bandwagon uh, at the pretext of trying to fill up a vacuum which it claims is being exploited by uh, hostile elements um, over the past couple of years in, in my understanding at least over the past decade uh, Washington's primary uh, concern has been Afghanistan but uh, in the past couple of years, uh, just in the last few years of Obama administration and uh, during the Trump administration, China has been uh, occupying a lot of uh, U.S. strategic interest uh, through in the Pacific theater. And uh, that is one of the reasons why the U.S. was trying to huddle up Pakistan for assistance in negotiating peace with the Taliban so that uh, it could focus on its larger interests in the Pacific, its long-term interests, which would continue for a decade or two into the future, or maybe even beyond that. Uh, the Middle East was becoming a zone of uh, jabber-jockeying and uh, dilly-dallying among different elements. But the U.S. realized that uh, every now and then it has to remind Russia, it has to remind Turkey, it has to remind Iran, and it also has to remind uh, adventurist uh, Arab Gulf countries that uh, it will decide through central command how the uh, dynamics in this theater will play out. And... Um, the, the Arab Gulf countries for their part, Saudi leadership and the UAE leadership in particular have been uh, have had severe reservations with the, the United States for not living up to fulfilling its uh, commitment and ensuring a credible presence of uh, a credible true presence in the Middle East uh, because they fear that uh, this vacuum was being exploited by Iran and the Quds force was primarily responsible for recruiting people and carrying out subversive sabotage activities across the region threatening Arab Gulf interests and that is why as a second option these Arab Gulf countries who were longtime US allies such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE they were finding other options to other uh, strategic patrons uh, larger strategic patrons who could uh, give them relief in the region these included uh, Russia and China, China to a very uh, less extent, but primarily Russia. Russia, especially Putin, has been uh, making inroads into the Middle East, and uh, Turkey recently has also been trying to challenge and propose its own uh, security dynamic in the larger Middle East and North Africa region. And it was time for the U.S. to remind everyone that uh, we are still here, we are relevant. Um, we saw the attack on Baghdadi. Uh, now, if you carry out an attack on Baghdadi or even Soleimani, it requires uh, persistent uh, surveillance and reconnaissance of the subject. Uh, and you need at least a few months of uh, solid intelligence mapping to figure out and plan options for a future hard attack or a kinetic attack. And this is what happened in the case of uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi of Daesh. 
the US had intelligence on him but they chose to attack him at a time when they considered it best for their to project their uh, national image and now we see that uh, the timing is very interesting um, if we are to believe that uh, the Quds force was responsible like that's what the media reports say with some technical evidence for attacking US military installations across Iraq then um, this has been ongoing for almost a year now why now why was Soleimani targeted now why wasn't uh, why weren't these uh, so-called preemptive attacks uh, executed or ordered earlier was it just uh, was the US administration actually just waiting for a presidential approval for these attacks because uh, it wouldn't take long for President Trump to deliberate on these options he's not uh, known to have a security centric mindset that's uh, he's more focused on the economic and commercial aspects and he puts more thought into it as far as his uh, public profile is concerned from what we've been uh, we, one has been able to make out so why now was the the beginning of a new year the, uh, the strike on 3rd November was this to send a symbolic message that 2020 belongs to the United States in the Middle East several interpretations could be taken on but I for one believe that uh, on a personal level that this is one of the main reasons why he was just targeted right now and they were waiting for an opportune moment to flex their muscles uh, the Russian Foreign Affairs Ministry very ominously condoled Iran and uh, praised Soleimani for being a devoted uh, subject of Tehran and they said that his killing would boost tensions across the Middle East. The Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs called for restraint to avoid further escalating tensions and we've seen that uh, just recently Pakistan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs issued a statement along similar lines exercise uh, cautioning and advising for maximum restraint to avoid further escalation um, as far as Europe is concerned France's uh, Europe minister said that Soleimani's killing I quote made the world more dangerous unquote um, France has its own security engagement with uh, Iran in the wake of uh, scrapping of JCPOA by the US one-sided uh, France has been trying to add, uh, negotiate with Iran on behalf of select uh, European countries such as Germany etc and trying to assure Tehran that uh, its interests would be met if it does not continue to enrich uranium beyond the specified levels and they are well aware that Soleimani's killing would trigger off and set a series of disruptions across the strategic stability paradigm in the Middle East um, Muqtada al-Sadr who was the head of the notorious Mahdi army an anti-US militia um, he joined mainstream politics but he recently issued a statement saying that um, he was reactivating his outfit and um, on standby for any revenge attacks and similarly the head of pro-Iran Asai Bahl al-Haq Qais al-Ghazali he urged fighters of the popular mobilization front to be ready so we can see that um, yeah, these uh, elements who were uh, employed as assets by uh, Iran across the Middle East from Bahrain, Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, 
and uh, even some pockets of Afghanistan and Pakistan they will be kept on standby and this is where Pakistan has uh, severe internal security and foreign policy considerations to look out for um, uh, it would definitely be in the interest of Pakistan to keep a close watch on uh, if uh, any such overtures are made by the Quds Force or any of its covert elements to try to uh, to try to recruit fighters from here again and uh, the last thing Pakistan would need or even any other country is that if their if uh, foot soldiers from their country are found involved in any so such attacks which would uh, unnecessarily spiral the issue further out of control and involve Pakistan in a mess which it does not want to be a part of so vigilance uh, is should be the number one priority and um, it remains to be seen how the uh, it will definitely impact the outcome of the afghan peace talks because now that central command is present over there uh, who knows how much of a commitment zalmay khaliz or the state department will allow them to have to negotiate with uh, the taliban we'll have to see on that front as well coming to the other development uh, new delhi's uh, focus on lakshadweep now just to give you a context lakshadweep is basically the name of an archipelago a series of around 35 islands spread across 78000 kilometers in the arabian sea opposite the southwestern coast of india it's basically in the western indian ocean it is governed by new delhi as a union territory Recently the state owned Indian Oil Corporation commissioned its 199th aviation fuel station at Agati Island which is one of the islands in Lakshadweep. Um just to give you a historical context Lakshadweep in Sanskrit means um 1000 islands. And this uh aviation fuel station at Agati would cater to aviation fuel needs of various consumers including the Indian Navy and Indian Coast Guard. Agati is the only island which has an airstrip in the Lakshadweep as of yet. There are some in uh, the Andaman and Nicobar Islands in the uh, eastern Indian Ocean in the Bay of Bengal. But as far as the western Indian Ocean is concerned, India's only uh, island airstrip is that in Agati Island. The inauguration of AFS Agati follows the earlier announcement in uh, early December 2019. of a program by the Indian Ministry of Civil Civil Aviation known as Udan Udan which means flight U D A N Udan 4.0 um its acronym reads out as Ude Desh ka Aam Nagarik or an a common citizen flies it's a regional air connectivity project of uh, the Ministry of Civil Aviation uh, the plan includes Agati and three other airstrips in Andaman and Nicobar Island um there is also planned to develop um two water aerodromes in Lakshadweep and similarly four in Andaman and Nicobar Island the efforts are in the direction to provide aerial connectivity to the region it will not only boost tourism but will also transform the economic situation of the region uh, the Lakshadweep archipelago bears strategic importance for the Indian defense forces um to add that a naval base indian naval station ins dweep rakshak was set up on kavarati island of lakshadweep in 2012 which functions under the southern naval command
during the first term of prime minister modi or modi 1.0 the indian navy was authorized to establish a naval detachment on androth island another island in lakshadweep to extend india's maritime reach and surveillance of arabian sea waters um, the indian navy for its part has been slowly but steadily upgrading naval infrastructure on minikoy island as well so we have androth island minikoy island kabarati island and agati island at least four main islands of lakshadweep in the western indian ocean which are being developed for security purposes and uh, under the garb of economic development by the indian establishment um it's interesting to note that in 2016 uh, during his first term in office the government of prime minister modi had set aside 505 crore rupees for telecom connectivity investments in lakshadweep and a letter which was issued by the telecom regulatory authority of india which was sent to the department of telecommunications it has it presents a very interesting depiction of what is actually the indian intent to prioritize development lakshadweep i quote from the letter reliable telecommunications between these groups of islands from the indian mainland is vital as they safeguard the country's eastern and western seaboards respectively and are strategically vital from the point of security as they are closer to foreign countries like indonesia thailand myanmar and maldives than the indian mainland unquote new delhi has been prepping lakshadweep for dominance of the seas in line with its ambitious agenda to assume de jure ownership of the western indian ocean in 2012 during congress rule uh, during the premiership of um, manmohan singh six radar stations were set up at lakshadweep in kiltan androth agati kalpeni minikoy and suhelipur islands for comprehensive maritime domain awareness by the indian coast guard uh, on a total india is setting up 46 coastal surveillance radars um in the indian ocean including six radars in sri lanka eight in mauritius one in seychelles and 10 in maldives now we all know that uh, the new regime in maldives it's pro india the pro china leader uh, uh, yamin has been gone so now this process is going to be fast tracked and uh, these radars these coastal surveillance radars are part of the coastal surveillance network project of uh, the indian government so uh, in my earlier podcast and in my research paper for cscr i mentioned in detail would not like to repeat it that uh, the western indian ocean through american patronage is going to assume greater strategic uh, and operational significance in the coming years and india apart from uh, its um, developments in and contributions to littoral states it's trying to build up its security Uh, and economic footprint in its own uh, islands in the lakshadweep and these would definitely provide uh, forward operating capabilities for the indian navy and uh, maybe in the near future uh, elements of uh, other services as well coming to another news important news the establishment of a new division in the ministry of external affairs recently uh, indian media reported that the mea set up a new division known as nest n e s t now it stands for new emerging and strategic technologies 
reportedly nest division will act as the nodal division to collaborate with foreign partners in 5g and artificial intelligence technology its mandate includes evolving india's external technology policy in line with its domestic needs um, uh, minister jay shankar said that technology connectivity and trades are at the heart of the new contestations this is a very interesting statement now uh, you might say that i'm obsessed uh, you might say that i have a, a particular fondness for jay shankar none of that but the point is that when he speaks jay shankar uh, very openly elucidates the objectives of uh, how or the vision with which india looks at evolving world affairs so you uh, when jay shankar talks you can actually know how india is looking at developing world affairs and when he says that technology connectivity and trades are at the heart of the new contestations he is actually correct because china has been using its uh, 5g prowess through via huawei to project uh, and also its quantum computing technologies to project its uh, dip diplomatic clout as an emerging world power now technology does enable a country which has uh, limited uh, other capabilities to exert its influence and uh, occupy certain strategics uh, and maintain certain high grounds in areas in which other more developed but uh, countries but with less uh, prioritized areas such as uh, europe etc are we can see that uh, china despite not having an aggressive or adventurous military it has tried to build up its technological capability and now ma maintains an edge uh, across the world uh, we all know how huawei is uh, establishing its footprint uh, in jay shankar's view nest will negotiate technology governance rules standards and multilateral plurilateral frameworks and the interesting thing is that indian foreign service officers will be given specialist training in different technical domains this is particularly important because up until now several bureaucrats in the uh, establishment of the indian administrative service or um in the regular domains of uh, indian ministry of uh, communications and electronics uh, they have their own international divisions as well but they are not uh, this is uh, a reverse approach this is india trying to use technological diplomacy so it's basically diplomacy for technolo uh, technological uh, secure uh, security and advancement purposes you need diplomats to secure your technological interests overseas you don't need te technological experts to secure your uh, diplomatic expertise and that's what uh, the indians have understood well and in my view this is the correct approach this will uh, bring some very uh, resourceful gains this has the potential to bring resourceful gains for india because on account of its um um it's a diplomatic machinery which is known to be influential and they have a very uh, prominent technological base so if uh, if uh, ifs officers will be trained in for example you will have a specific batch of ifs officers specializing in ai you will have others in 5g it will allow them to negotiate with the um, trade partners um in uh, target countries such as uh, us israel russia china etc to uh, establish a quid pro quo mechanism for transfer of technology and other purposes and also project india's own image as a 
regional IT hub so this assumes a lot of importance uh, but this development follows an earlier incident in September 2019 so just uh, almost uh, four or five months ago um, Indian government Jay Shankar he announced scholarship for 1000 PhD students from ASEAN countries to study in any of the 23 IITs the Indian Institutes of Technology across India the Ministry of Human Resource Development uh, will provide scholarships along with annual living expenses for the scholars um, the first batch will be enrolled this month Jan 2020 and will continue up till 2022 so the, the first phase will continue from uh, 2020 till uh, 2022 so this is part of the tech diplomacy initiative by the Indian Ministry of External Affairs to lure in ASEAN students and obviously when you are funding scholarships for 1000 PhD students you're using all that soft power to uh, accrue favorable outcomes for future policy making in ASEAN and in the larger Indo-Pacific context. So yes, uh, this is uh, apart from uh, economic diplomacy. Now this is technological diplomacy, and we'll. Uh, this is a very interesting development. India already has a cyber coordinator, uh, cyber affairs coordinator in the MEA, but this is purely focused on the technology itself, and not the cyber security or cyber affairs regime. Uh, this will be a very interesting uh, development to follow, and. Uh, uh, you never know uh, if uh, on a quid pro quo while India will itself uh, acquire some sort of uh, bargaining with uh, original equipment manufacturers and technology uh, processes overseas the very fact that uh, uh, 5G is becoming an increasing phenomenon across the world uh, India could use all its power to become part of the international or multilateral uh, process to establish norms around the use of 5G technologies and uh, its input will be given con uh, weightage and supported by countries where whose students have benefited from this uh, in scholarship initiative. So this is good work at play uh, from a strictly neutral viewpoint. Uh, this uh, technological diplomacy program uh, training and investing in their own officers is something which should be replicated in uh, other developing countries such as Pakistan also. Um, uh, this could uh, incur benefits for FSP officers as well. But the fact of the matter is that uh, realistically speaking, Pakistan is not in a position to be compared with India when it comes to technology or uh, internet intensity and penetration rate in Pakistan is also very low. It's negligible and uh, we do not have as much of a burgeoning in uh, tech industrial base as India has. But technology offers an opportunity for countries like ours to utilize minimum resources for maximum gains. And uh, if we are able to harness our technological prowess and use that as a, a, a leverage for enhanced communication and understanding for diplomatic purposes, then obviously. Uh, this is something which needs to be considered by the national leadership and this development from a security point of view uh, we'll have to see how that goes about in uh, the next division coming to the next topic
Iran's diplomatic outreach to Russia and China. Jawad Zarif, the foreign minister of Iran, he led a delegation to Moscow on 30th December. And apart from bilateral relations, the usual talk, uh, issues around the Persian, Arab Gulf, Syria and Afghanistan were also discussed. This is part of routine, dis uh, these subjects are routine discussions between the Iran and uh, Russia uh, diplomats. And the next day, the very next day on 31st December, coincidentally the same day when the US announced it was sending 82nd airborne troops to Kuwait, uh, Zarif went to China to discuss bilateral relations, the joint comprehensive plan of action developments and I quote, most pressing international and regional issues, unquote. We've seen how uh, these developments have been sidelined now by Soleimani's killing. Probably no one had in mind that uh, the situation would come about. Though it has, the whole uh, stability equation has been disrupted. Um, the whole uh, dynamics have been changed by this single incident. And uh, uh, I'd like to juxtapose these developments, these back and forth visits to Russia and China, we've, uh, we, um, this whole year in 2019, we've seen persistent engagement between not just Iran and Russia, but also with China, especially in the context of uh, 25 years strategic roadmap with the latter. Uh, I'd like to juxtapose these developments with a very interesting piece, which I read recently in the Global Times of China, authored by Dr. Oleg Ivanov. Mr. Ivanov is Vice Rector of Research at Russia's Diplomatic Academy in Moscow. He says that in 2020, both Ch Russia and China will resist efforts by the what he calls Collective West to replace the UN as the main international institution formulating rules of behavior in international politics. I quote, more coordination and joint work between Russia and China so our cooperation will be indispensable not only for our countries but for international stability on the whole that goes beyond bilateral relations." Unquote. The main argument put forth by Dr. Ivanov is that um, the collective West which, which is led by the US and by certain European powers, they are trying to set their own international rules of the game in parallel and in confrontation with the United Nations, which is considered by all without doubt as the source of all uh, international and uh, global cooperation. And just to tell you about uh, who Dr. Ivanov is, Mr. Ivanov supervises research work at the Russian Diplomatic Academy and uh, these are the people who train diplomats from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Russia, allied countries, foreign professors and scholars also. And their research focuses on scientific and political su support of foreign policy of the Russian Federation for promotion of its interests and positions on the world arena, uh, including development of scientific methodological and information base for its foreign policy decision making. So, um, in his view, in Dr. Ivanov's view, 2020 is a defining moment for China and Russia to resist efforts by uh, aggressive ambitions of the collective West. So, uh, in, it is in this context I view Iran's continued outreach to Moscow and Beijing 
and trying to garner uh, patronage of these two leading countries of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization against uh, what it perceives is uh, belligerence from the West, especially the United States of America. I recommend you read uh, that if you can, you should read that uh, opinion piece on Global Times. It's titled China Russia Unity Can Resist US Pressure. Coming to Libya, uh, it's proving a battleground for Turkish and Arab strategists. Just a day into the new year, Turkish lawmakers approved a bill to deploy Turkish troops to Libya to intervene in the civil war and support the UN backed government in Tripoli. Um, Israel, Cyprus and Greece have already criticized this move, whereas Egypt also condemned it for having the potential to, I quote, negatively affect the stability of the Mediterranean region. Now, Turkey is pitting itself up against insurgent forces of Khalifa Haftar, who is backed by Egypt, Jordan, KSA, the UAE and Russia. Jordan trained Haftar's troops and he received weapons from Egypt, Sudan, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Uh, recently, a U.S. delegation led by Deputy National Security Advisor for MENA region and AFRICOM also met Haftar for talks. There is an interesting statement by Bill Gehan Ozturk of the CETA Foundation for Political, Economic and Social Research. He says that um, uh, it is Turkey is trying to secure its uh, energy interests through this uh, geostrategic project of involvement in Libya. And um, before I conclude this podcast, um, Henry J. Barkey, the former U.S. State Department uh, officer, he quoted a very interesting Turkish uh, column authored by Ehan Akhtar, the Turkish academic. He said that this new approach by Turkey to exert itself more prominently in Libya for strategic and economic purposes is the outcome of a new doctrine known as Mavi Vatan or Blue Homeland Doctrine which claims and I quote extensive maritime jurisdiction in the Aegean and Mediterranean seas unquote uh, this doctrine seeks to according to Akhtar this doctrine seeks to claim large segments of the eastern Mediterranean continental shelf for Turkey's benefit at the expense of its neighbors now obviously this is what uh, Bill Gehan Ozturk of CETA Foundation also wrote he said that um, Russia is uh, happy with the stalemate in Eastern Mediterranean between Turkey and uh, Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus uh, because uh, uh, the prospect of tra transfer of hydrocarbon resources from Mediterranean to Europe via pipelines either through or bypassing Turkey would remain a low probability and that is what Russia is trying to achieve depriving Europe of the hydrocarbon resources of Mediterranean to maintain its energy dependence on the former. Now the new MOU between Turkey and Libya, between the Turkish government and that of the government in Tripoli, it shifts the balance of power in the Mediterranean in favor of Turkey. Now Russia aims to reverse the move and return to its previous status quo by breaking one of its pillars through Haftar's attack on Tripoli. So this is where despite odds, this is where uh, countries, uh, Arab Gulf countries such as the UAE, Saudi Arabia, they have their own arms sales to Haftar as well they come into this prospect and uh, this is why Turkey is not being tolerated and overall as discussed in the previous podcast Turkey's uh, larger ambitions or tri-continental strategy of linking Europe Africa and Asia through itself as a pivot 
is materializing now this mavi watan or blue homeland doctrine which we've recently heard from mr ayhan akhtar this needs to be studied further and this is what connects turkey in the mediterranean with our nearby neighbor qatar in the indian ocean how this will impact pakistan and its regional interests in the times to come remains to be studied and uh, hopefully uh, more on this will literature will be available